Welcome to the Expat Fire Club, where we interview seekers of financial independence living outside of their home countries and the people that can help them achieve their goals. As our guest, he's an active duty Marine. I'm sorry, he was an active duty Marine for 13 years, currently in the Marine Corps Reserve. And while he was in the Marine Corps, he was serving as a command financial specialist, which is kind of like a military financial advisor. He's a buy and hold investor in residential, commercial, hospitality and multifamily real estate. And David's just a really passionate speaker. He's, he has his own channel, his own platform that he's been helping veterans and service members and their families to build wealth through real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and personal finance. So welcome to our podcast, David. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah, we, we really appreciate you being on here. And, and I, I should clarify this here. David is joining from his car because it's, kind of, it's a little bit under the weather right now. So I was going to suggest we reschedule it. But David, thank you very much for for taking the time out of your out of your evening here to, to join us. So I, I think we can tell the truth. David was actually kicked out of his house. Yeah, his I'm, wife wasn't more, very happy. Too much I'm real estate. So yeah. so uh, David, I you know I, I don't know if I I got everything right on that intro. Is there anything else? Is there anything I missed there with your career and what you've been up to? I mean, I, I did a lot in the logistics world. I traveled a lot, around a lot when I was in the Marine Corps. And yeah, as of uh, about a month and a half ago, I'm in the reserves officially. Well, I guess, shoot, two months ago now wow. in the reserves and, and kind of just doing doing my own thing. So we're trying to take real estate and the platform full time to see, you know, see how many people we can reach and, and what we can do to help. So typical buy and hold investor currently have like, I don't know, somewhere over 100 doors that I own at least a third of and then partner on a couple syndications as well with a much smaller ownership percentage and if we can get an answer back hopefully under contract on the 27 unit today or tomorrow but oh, awesome nice. that's good yeah so, so you're i'm sorry i just wanted to ask so you're you have some direct ownership buy and hold you're actually syndicating some deals is that correct and then you're also a passive investor on syndication I'm much more of a buy and hold guy myself. I am currently in the middle of doing my second syndication. I haven't actually invested in any syndications as a limited partner yet. It's mostly, they've both been GP. Okay. It's, I don't know. I still haven't figured out how much, how much I like that. Like, so being in the partnership is awesome and, and syndication deals are awesome and apartments are awesome. I don't like the like SEC side of like the paperwork stuff. So I have to partner mm -hmm. with someone because like, there's no way I would ever get through this process on my own. Cause it's just, yeah, I'm not a detail oriented person like that, but yeah, I've done that. And then I own a bunch of random stuff on my own. So we own a hotel, three apartments and a bunch of like smaller, you know, one to four unit properties throughout my, my market and sub markets that, I either own myself or with another partner. Okay, great. Awesome. Yeah, so yeah. we'll have to go in a little bit more in detail with the hotel thing that you just mentioned as well later on here. But before we get into that, David, can you tell us a little bit about your what, what your life looked like before you even got invested or started investing in real estate and also before you even got into the military? What, what, was, what was your life like then? Yeah. So before the military, I was a random homeschool kid in Arkansas. Didn't grow up super wealthy or anything. My parents were missionaries. I was homeschooled. I don't know. Nothing really crazy to tell there. And then first, let's see, 2015, first seven years I was in the Marine Corps, I pretty much just did all the normal, you know, 
single military mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. The the cars, the alcohol, the tattoos, the chase and tail. The only thing I did right was I contributed to my thrift savings plan. But even that I messed up because I left it all in the G fund, which is, you know, like mm -hmm. bonds. And so you figure I joined in 2008. And so from 08 to 15, which is phenomenal years, if you look at the stock market, right? Here I am contributing to a fund that's earning one or 2% return missing all the good returns and i was only contributing eight to ten percent and it was on again off again it wasn't consistent so i kicked myself for not doing that but at least i contributed something and then yeah i had i mean if you take the tsp out of the equation i had a super negative net worth if you add the tsp into the equation i i might have had a a a, a break-even net worth maybe in 2015 and then i that's kind of when i started i read rich dad poor dad and i house hacked a duplex so i bought a duplex with an fha loan lived in one half rented the other and, and that was kind of the light bulb moment where i realized like oh this actually works then when i moved out of the house and it started cash flowing then it was like you know now i now i've seen the way i've seen the light and i'm gonna buy more real estate <laughs> so okay good good and so just to clarify a, a thrift savings plan for any of our listeners out there that's the the military version, if I'm correct here, the military version of the 401k, or is it the Roth IRA? More of a 401k, 401k. I think. Yeah, yeah, so. an employer match. Right, right. Oh. And so do you still, are you still heavy into the, the TSP, the thrift savings plan? Or? Well, now that I'm... Now that I'm off active duty, I can't contribute to that. I could do my own like Roth IRA. I do contribute my reserve pay to it. And I, I mean, I maxed it out this year on my way out, so yeah. Yeah, I wish I'd done that sooner. This was the first year I ever actually, well, and I, I actually I more than maxed it out because the max is like 19,500, mm -hmm. but the matching contribution doesn't count to your maximum. And so I actually contributed like 21.5 with the matching contribution. So, which is, you know, great, but I wish I'd done that a lot sooner, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm rebel. always kicking myself personally because you know, all the years I lived in the United States, I worked full time, all these type of things. I, I didn't contribute to any retirement accounts. And now that I've been in Japan for, you know, close to 15 years, I can't contribute to anything in the, the U.S. So there there's so I've kind of missed out on that whole layer of retirement that I could have because of because I didn't do anything until I was 30, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer. Um, yeah, I love I love the TSP 401k just because if you contribute at an early age, then you can just let it ride and know your free your your retirement is covered. So then you can afford to take some risks in the interim mm -hmm. to you know build a portfolio quicker. Yeah. So you know most of our listeners we're we're focused on expats, people living overseas. So I'm sure you were deployed overseas many times during that journey where you were buying real estate back in the states. At least I think you were. Could you talk a little bit about that and some of the issues that come up and how how you met those challenges? Yeah, so I guess I, t I technically, I, I guess it depends on how you define overseas. So I was in Japan and Afghanistan, but that was all before I got into real estate. I, after getting into real estate, Hawaii was about as far away as I got, but okay. I would imagine it's still, still fairly similar issues that come up when you're trying to buy real estate from across an ocean, right? So, yeah, uh, I mean, I think the biggest issue is getting stuff like documents overnighted right for signatures if you're trying to buy stuff yourself that was always a pain i luckily enough if you're on a military installation you know they every every adjutant has a notary so you could just run in with documents get it notarized and send it back out but i ended i ultimately ended up having to get to where my title company would 
email me the documents so that I could print them, sign them on the right mm -hmm. day, and then I would overnight them back because I was like, guys, by the time you send me this mail, you know, it's going to be four days late for my signature or or e-sign, right? If you're not if you're not doing a mortgage, so if you're doing private lending or anything like that, you don't need wet signatures, so you can just do DocuSign, which is a lifesaver. Yeah, unfortunately for people, even veterans, when you're living in a foreign country, your only way to get notarization is usually through the consulate. And sometimes they'll have like a law firm that's that's allowed to do it. And I'm actually dealing with that right now with two refinances. And it's been a nightmare because the, they, they were allowing us to do a, an e-sign with something, but they won't let my wife do it because she's not a U.S. citizen. And she needs to sign off on some documents. So yeah, it can be really difficult. Man. Yeah. It's like one of those where if I wasn't recording, I would tell you like, maybe you just need to make a really good friend who's a notary in the States and be like, bro, like, <laughs> I'm going to send you some documents. You need these notarized. But since this is recorded, obviously I wouldn't tell you that. So, uh, of course not. <laughs> so, uh, so David on like kind of coming back to the, uh, the balance between the, uh, the thrift savings plan versus uh, re going into real estate, which do you prefer doing? Do you prefer focusing mainly on real estate or do you prefer looking into index funds, kind of investing? And, and why, do you, why do you kind of focus on, on one or the other? I prefer real estate and it is mainly a personality thing. They're both phenomenal, right? So they both have pros and cons. Like 401k okay. index fund TSP is like the most passive form of investing I mean, you can even set it as a contribution and just like, cool, I'll pull it out 40 years and, and maybe you check the balance once a month or once a quarter or once a year or whatever. And so I love that aspect. And I love that it, you know, you can dollar cost average, it it does its thing, it, it trends up over time. There's no complications, no tenants, no title, no mortgage, no mispayments, no, oops, I forgot. Oh, holy crap, gas prices went up in my utility bill tripled or whatever. It's just simple, right? It's just, you just set it, you forget it. It's whatever. I love that aspect. I don't, as far as like analyzing index funds and stuff, I don't have the brain for like cross-referencing 10 million different. Like I basically went in, it was like, I like this one. I like this one. I like that one. And here we go. I try to go total market, stock market index. On the real estate side, it's Unless you're doing the limited partner in a syndication, which is extremely passive, right? I mean, you just got to vet the operator and vet the deal. And then that's extremely passive. Unless you're doing that, it's definitely more work, more headaches, more whatever. But you can turn, a, if, if you if you know what you're doing, you know, it's possible to turn a, a bigger return faster. And, and really for me, I just enjoy like kind of the thrill of the hunt. I enjoy the negotiation. I enjoy the problem solving, the like, it's almost like playing chess where it's like, Oh, well, his mortgage is this, so he can't do this, but, oh, well, what if he seller finances this part and then I get this and, or I'll have someone pay private money here and then I'll refine it. Like there's all kinds of stuff. So I kind of enjoy that side of it, even though it's not as passive and I enjoy, you know, having, hiring a property manager and, and having, you know, oh, hey, this broke, let's put that kind of toilet back in or, or whatever. So it kind of just boils down to like personality because I mean, the pros and cons are, you know, let's say you earn a 7% a return and you put $20,000 in the stock market, you earn a 7% return, that's 1400 bucks or whatever a year. Cool. But if you put 20000 into a house and that house appreciated 7%, well, you got 7000 in increased value off the same twenty grand because the bank lent you the money on the rest. But then 
then you then you you know then it's not liquid you can't pull the money out there, there's so many like it, it's such a difficult thing to answer because it really kind of just boils down to like your long-term goals right what do you what do you want to be doing in retirement and and do you want to mess with it at all or do you just want to set it forget it they're both great i love them both i don't plan on pulling any money out of my tsp i'm kind of viewing it as my like super emergency fund that's just going to keep growing as i don't touch it and then if i ever get into a really bad spot i'll just pull it and save myself but we'll see yeah right uh, that's awesome and, and for the tsp are there a lot of options because i know in specific company 401ks you don't have a lot of options but it seems like there's a lot to choose from there's i'm gonna botch this so there's a an s fund a c fund an i fund so like stocks bonds or g fund so it's like the S and C fund kind of mirror the S and P 500. I is international. G is like government backed securities. And then there's a bunch of life cycle funds. Uh, mm -hmm. So they have life cycle funds set up for like every five years okay. as retirement strategies. Those are fairly new. It used to be just every 10 years. And it used to be that your money instantly went into the G fund, like the bonds, but now it automatically mm -hmm. starts off on the life cycle. So it's not, it's not necessarily a ton of options. They've done a pretty good job of trying to simplify them for you. I usually tell people either read the book, Simple Path to Wealth and, and like understand what you're actually investing in or just choose a life cycle fund and, and leave it alone. <laughs> like one yeah. or the other, either do your research or just choose a life cycle and ignore it. Yeah, that's kind of like what I did for my mom's my mom's money. You know, she's not gonna read anything. She's not gonna do something. So we just put it in a life cycle, just let it go, so. Great. So which I want to jump a little bit. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say which is great. You know, it's simple. Yeah, really simple. I wanted to jump more into real estate because, as you know, I'm that's where I'm mostly investing is real estate. So I'm really interested in this. You mentioned a few different asset classes. So first thing I wanted to ask you is, are you only investing in one area, even though you were living, say, in Hawaii or whatever? Are all of your properties in one area or are they all over the place? With the exception of the syndications, yes. The okay. syndications, one of them is in South Carolina, and the, the the two deals that we're working on right now, one is in, well, it's technically it's five apartments, but one of the apartments is in Winston-Salem, and the other four are in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. But as far as, like, my, like, personal, the stuff that I have a controlling interest in and, and, and just a JV on with people as opposed to, like, had to raise money, they're all in this area within... 45 minute drive of each other. Okay. And you're in Missouri right now, right? Correct. Yeah. Southwest Missouri. And Southwest Missouri. Okay. For no like specific reason. It's just, it's where I bought the first house. I had a decent mm -hmm. property manager. It was a somewhat affordable market. And I was like, well, I have an agent, I have a property manager and I can afford this market. I should probably just stick there instead of trying to complicate yeah. things. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm famous for complicating things. You, you mentioned <laughs> Also, you're in a few different sort of asset classes, if you can call them that, in real estate. Like you have a hotel as well as multifamily. And I guess there are there some single families in there as well? Yeah, pretty much everything from one unit to a 40 unit at this point. Oh, wow. And so can you talk a little bit about why you chose those certain asset classes? I mean, was it, again, sort of just what was available at the time? Or did you have a specific strategy of why you like those? So I... I'm kind of an anomaly, I guess, in the real estate world, because people tell you that you need to focus, like hyper-focus, right? And they say, if you want to buy three-bedroom, two-bath, single-family homes in this zip code, then you're going to be the best because you focused on that. I'm 
kind of more of the under the impression that you'll you'll hit more with a grenade than a sniper rifle and i basically bought into like i like buy and hold real estate and buy and hold can be a single family house a duplex a fourplex i have a 10 unit a 15 a 23 40 unit hotel i tried a mixed use commercial building at one point but that didn't quite work out the way it was supposed to you know just kind of open to all sorts of different things as long as the the numbers work right so it's just you know being open to for me it's just making sure the numbers work as far as like a, a long-term hold i don't necessarily care yeah. asset class specific. And, and are you specifically looking at cash flow as your main metric or is there something else like i mean just to give you an example like in my case i actually own properties in different areas for different goals so like I have properties in Boise, Idaho that are all about appreciation and that, and I've done really well with that. And I use them as banks to then finance properties I own in higher cash flow markets. So I have these different strategies. So I was wondering what what are you looking at in terms of metrics to make the numbers work? I like that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm mainly just looking at how much undervalue it and how much it'll cash flow. So I'm doing a lot of off-market stuff, so Really, I, I'm basically wholesaling, except that I'm trying to buy everything myself instead of giving any of it away. And so, like, maybe I'll wholesale one or two deals a month to keep the doors open. But, you know, I just bought, uh, we closed on two last month and then we're supposed to close on one last week, but something came up with title. So we're delayed, but that we're just holding one of those. We, we're going to wait and see what the overall all in budget is because we're torn between a burr and a flip because mm -hmm. it's in a really good area that I'd like to hold it. But, the numbers look pretty sweet as a flip. So we'll kind of play that one by year as we get a little bit closer. But I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much just more, much more of a cash flow guy. But I try to find things that, you know, I can find off market and I can buy for 60, 70 cents on the dollar and then I can touch them up and I can refinance and just hold them for the long run. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Like I've actually built my whole portfolio not really buying under market values, under market properties. So I, I buy at market value, but I, I do a lot of market analysis to see where that market is going in terms of rent and price. And it's worked for me and it's been a little bit easier, but I, I know I'm sort of the anomaly here with that, that I, I'm not really searching for these really far undervalued deals. I mean, the plus side to that is you're also not spending 10 grand on marketing every month. Like I, yeah. I like well, 10 grand a month, but I'm, I'm inching in on it. Yeah. I kind of dollar cost average into the real estate market is kind of how I look at it into the markets I'm like looking it. at. But one thing, yeah. you know, you mentioned a, a few terms there and our listeners, you know, have different levels of, of knowledge on this. You talked about wholesaling, flipping and burring. I think everybody understands flipping because they watch those sort of TV shows. Oh, yeah. But could you just briefly tell us what wholesaling and a burr is? Yeah, so wholesaling is, and I guess the easiest way to describe it would be I own this car and it's worth $10,000. And if I agreed to sell it to you for $5,000, you could then sell it to somebody else for 6,000 and you would make $1,000 off having essentially made two different people connect on buying and selling a car. Yeah. So we find, we try to find properties that are, I mean, prime example is a property we have under contract right now. The lady's about to get foreclosed on. And so we're trying mm -hmm. to, go in there and we're just going to buy it for the note, right? The remaining balance plus fees or late fees or whatever. And we'll be, I think we're going to end up being 
like right at 58 or 59, but the property is worth 90 as is, but you know, she's, she's missed her payments for so long. They're not going to let her catch up. She's incapable of catching up. And then on top of that, like, it's just kind of a mess. Like the property is a weird one where, you know, people aren't going to be able to just come in and say, Oh, we need to take 30 days with a mortgage to like, we got to come in with cash, call the bank and say, Hey, tell me what you owe and we're going to buy it. And so, because it's a weird deal, you know, or, or a lot of times they're really messed up houses where you couldn't get a loan on it. So we're paying cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because they're in these weird situations, there's a lot of like a pain or a, a need to sell. A lot of times, you know, you get the properties for fairly cheap just because of that. And then you turn around and you, the wholesaling game is usually to sell it to somebody who's going to do the renovations as a house flipper. And so you sell it to them. So they make enough money. They'll still make enough money off the flip. But like, you know, for me, like I'm flipping one right now, but I don't have enough contractors to flip the second one at the same time yet. So if I had one right now that popped up, I'd be like, well, I guess I'm going to sell this to somebody else because I can't take it on myself. So David, is is financing ever really an issue for you? If you, let's say you you mentioned that you got to find enough people, enough contractors that want to take on a house if you're you know, if you're, if you're trying to wholesale, but you also said that you're in, you, you've got a hotel, you've got a bunch of buy and holds, you got duplexes. Do you ever run into any, any issues or any troubles trying to find a bank that's going to help you finance, or have you hit that limit or you've got to start bringing in hard money? Can you talk about uh, financing here? Yeah. So we have a uh, hyper local bank that works with us right now. And okay. they are phenomenal and they're a portfolio lender. So they kind of do things in house and they've been really cool about letting us kind of do all sorts of things on the financing realm. But a lot of what I'm doing right now is I'm buying things cash or, or like private money. Right. So like, let's say Daniel, I called him and I was like, oh my gosh, I got this house. It's amazing, but I don't have any money. Can you lend me $70,000? I'll pay you one point and 10% interest and I'll have your money back in 60 days. And then I buy the house and I refinance it with my local lender and then I pay them back. Right. So I've been doing a lot of that. I'm kind of testing the waters on that right now because my lender doesn't have a seasoning period, which is amazing. So I can literally refinance the day after I buy a property if it's cash. And so I'm kind of playing with that right now. But I, I, other than that, I mean, it's just kind of nice because they're portfolio. So we have, well, I say me and my partners, but it's like me and then, people that I am partnered with and their own deals amongst all of us, we probably have brought 18. If we buy this 27 unit, probably close to $20 million worth of loans over to this one lender in the last wow. eight months. Wow. And so he, he, and their portfolio. So they kind of can do, you know, they can flex. And so he's been kind of a godsend. Like, I mean, I tried to refinance this fourplex and he was like, Ooh, it's not a very pretty fourplex. The bank isn't sure they want to lend on it. And I was like, oh, well, that's not cool. What if I tell you it's making this much in cash flow and I'm going to use the money from the refinance to fix it up? He's like, hang on. And then he goes in the board. He comes out. He's like, yep, you're getting approved. I'm like, thanks. Wow. And so it's kind of been those those relationships with like a super local like portfolio. In fact, mm-hmm. he got promoted like three months ago. And we kind of all give him a hard time like, oh, must be nice. You got we did we pay for this fancy chair? But there's obviously, <laughs> obviously there's much bigger players in town. But he's he's been awesome. In fact, he's so awesome that this 27 unit they want to do. They're on a time crunch for a 1031, and he like there's no way to do like a normal close. It's got to be like a 28 day close, and you know on commercial, 
with appraisers right now, we're, we're 45 to 60 days out. So that's not, mm-hmm. that's not possible. And he was like, well, what if I just do an uncollateralized, like an unsecured loan for 1.2 million so you can buy it cash and then we'll just do the appraisal afterwards. And as soon as it's done, we'll refinance it into long-term debt. Like, yeah, that sounds good. Thanks, man. So <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, that, that's yeah. really cool. Just as a quick follow-up on on that about financing, I, I noticed on your website you mentioned the financing, and there was one thing specifically you were talking about with that's called you called it cattle financing. Is this your own term that you came up with in your own style? Can <laughs> yeah, you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, so cattle financing it basically speaks to like the creative mentality, right? So if you Tell yourself you're not, you don't have money, you can't buy a property, you're obviously never going to be able to buy a property. I'll tell you, we've bought things on a on a lease option, we've bought stuff on seller financing, we've bought stuff subject to the existing mortgage where we just take over payments. There's all kinds of creative ways to buy houses, especially when you're not dealing with real estate agents, you're just talking directly to the seller. You can just say, well, you know, how about instead of giving you $200,000, I give you 20 and I pay you 2% interest for the next whatever, and it comes out to 210 or you know, whatever you can do anything but yeah the cattle financing is essentially so I'm, I'm actually sitting in the driveway we have five acres and the guy on the other side of us on the back side he owned a house on five acres and a vacant lot on five acres and i've told him for years if you ever move i want to buy the five acres in the middle and uh he was never going to move until his job transferred him to like georgia and so when he moved i was like hey i want the five acres in the middle and I'll pay you, you know, $2,000 an acre more than what it's worth to make sure that you sell it to me instead of whoever the other guy is, right? Like, I don't know who's buying your house, but I don't care. I want the five acres. And But it, it, it's not an investment, right? So it's it's one of those things, like, I had to pay $40,000, and it's, it's not like you, when you think of, like, you start thinking about making money, right? That sounds like a bad idea because it's like, well, I'm paying to own something that I'm going to have to keep paying to own that's not going to make any money. And so we're trying to think through the, I think it's Robert Kiyosaki who says to focus on like, instead of thinking, I can't afford that. You think, how can I afford that? And so we're trying to think through that. And ultimately what we realized is we're out in the middle of nowhere. My wife's dad is a cattle farmer and we had uh, three or four cows that just kind of grazed on our five acres and we didn't do anything with them. And we thought, well, what if we just let them, you know, breed? And once there's 10 of them, we just sell cows every year. Like how many cows do we have to sell? Like, oh, four to six, but okay, well, a cow averages like 1200 bucks. So basically the math works out as 350 a month for the five acres. So it's 4,000 a year. So if we sell three and a half cows or, you know, four, four cows a year, we break even. And then, yeah, we sell six cows. We make a couple extra dollars on top of that. And yeah, so we, we have some cows out here that they eat our grass and then eventually other people eat them for dinner and we use them to pay our mortgage for the wow. five acres. Creative financing. I, I love it. So yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. great. Like how can I afford it? That's really cool. Yeah. I was it's just going to say like, sorry, what was that Dave? Oh, I was just going to say, and the cool bonus is when the land is paid off, the cows are still going to keep bringing in cash. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I was just wondering, since you were stationed in Japan for a while, did you ever eat any of the Japanese beef? We have like Kobe beef and where I live, we have Omi beef. I I wish. I was a E2, E3 living in Okinawa <laughs> with no culture. I did yeah. a lot of habu sake and sake and I you know, I did I did enjoy a lot of I actually really like Japanese culture, right? I 
I actually took Japanese language like oh, two for two years, although I don't remember much of it because it's been a decade. But I really like Japanese culture, Japanese food. Like I, I want to go back. But as far as like the high end beef, I mean, I've had Wagyu, but not in mm-hmm. Japan. And and I want to go back and do that because the oh my goodness, the meat is amazing. But I was definitely not that cultured as a young marine out there. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, well, so sorry, real quick, Daniel. I was going to say anyone that, that's listening, and he, he mentioned uh, which is a specific kind of sake, where they'll put a uh, viper, a venomous snake, inside yeah. of the bottle, <laughs> and you're drinking this. You're drinking this, and if you ever get a chance to try this stuff, it's it's wicked, man. You, it's not something you want to drink a lot of. I'll tell you that. Yeah, you drink like one shot as a pregame because it makes, from my understanding, it kind of tells your liver to calm down. And so it essentially tells your body to process alcohol slower and then, you, or, or what, I don't, I don't remember the math. I just know that if you drank one of those shots before you drank anything else, it was much cheaper to drink the rest of the night. Well, if you come out to Japan, you can come and visit us. We'll take you out for, for the local beef. John's up in Tokyo and I'm in Kyoto. So got both. I, would, I would love that. I not to derail your podcast, but I did a month training in Fuji. When I was, I would have been 2009, 2010, like that Christmas, New Year's. So I would have been 20. And we had a four-day pass to Tokyo at the end. And I had more fun going to Rapungi and not knowing what to do with myself. And that's probably where I'll leave that because I think both of you probably know what I like no, no one else about Rapungi enough that I probably shouldn't talk about what, what that is. But yeah. Tokyo is a I, crazy city. Yeah. It's a good city. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you, Ropongi is the location of the Bigger Pockets meetup. So in Japan. Really? So yeah, that's where we meet for I've been up there several times. And yep. So but it, it's not as wild, I'm sure, as as the time you were there. Oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's like the biggest city in the world. And then you go to their red light district and you're like, oh my goodness, there are clubs and tattoo parlors everywhere. Yeah. But it's a great place. So that was awful. Yeah, that's fun. Well, you got to come to Kyoto. I'd love to come out there. I'll I'll let you guys know. Okay. So jumping back into the real estate, you know, I know that I've made some mistakes in the past. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What's what's your biggest mistake in real estate, or some interesting story that maybe you got through but was difficult to to deal with at the time? Yeah, I've got a I've got a few. I've actually got one that's like currently in a lawsuit still three years later trying to recoup money but the one that's probably most relatable to people is that i tried to flip a house in missouri while living in san diego and i didn't i I trusted my contractor because he seemed like a nice guy and so i would give him draws when he said he was ready for the next one and i would i would kind of check on things and my my wife would drive by the property but like you know, they were sending me pictures of a property, but not like video walkthroughs. And I wasn't running things off a checklist for what should be done next. And I just wasn't managing it right. And one day he called me and he was like, Hey, we've got some really bad news. We had like $10,000 worth of material stolen from your, your project. And this was, mind you, I had been told we were like a week away from being done. Right. And I was like, Oh my goodness. All right. Well, that sounds terrible. Uh, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm going to talk to my insurance guy can you send me the receipts? And they didn't have receipts. And then I talked, so then I talked, called the next door neighbor and he's like, they didn't have anything that big in the house. Like, there's no way. 
I was like, wow. hmm. All right. So like I come to find out that essentially this guy's business was like going under and he was robbing Peter to pay Paul and I was Peter. And so like money that I was sending him was going to other deals in hopes that when he finished them, he'd be able to then take the money from them to finish mine. And none of that worked out. So by the time I ended up selling that house, I think I was, I mean, I lost 30 grand. I think I was like 62,000 into it. And I think we sold it for like 35 and then after commissions and everything, you know, so that was, that was a fun one. So I learned a lot about how was to actually manage the contract. On, David, David, was that early on in your investing career? Or was that like you were, you already had a few doors under your belt? Well, it was probably about three years in. It was, it was my first ever like solo flip though. Gotcha. So, I mean, this was fairly, I mean, I had probably 12 or 13 doors, but I would, I mean, I guess at this, where I'm at now in my life, I would say, yeah, that was pretty, pretty early on, Okay. like still, still in learning process. I had 12 doors or 13 doors, but it was like a duplex, a 10 unit and a single family house. So it wasn't like I'd done a ton of deals. And then I had no business taking on a renovation without being in the market or, or having a partner or, or boots on the ground or, or something. Yeah, so yeah. definitely like you learned from that mistake though, right? And you yeah. grew from that. Good, good. Yeah, yeah I, I I do that, you know, because as I said, for the most part, I try to buy almost like turnkey properties that I can, not turnkey from a turnkey provider all the time, but I have done that as well. But when I have done burrs or a lot of fixing up or anything, I partner with a local in, in, the, in the market. So one of the things I, I did is I started partnering with my real estate agent. So he is motivated to find deals. He's motivated to, to manage my managers, do all that type of stuff. And that's, that's one little technique I've been using when I've been doing things where, where we need to have a contractor. But, yeah. Yeah. I think that's smart. Yeah, cool. So kind of to transition a little bit here, I, David, I had a chance to listen to a few of your podcast episodes here. And by the way, if, if any of our listeners have a chance to find him, you can find him on the uh, From Military to Millionaire. It's on Apple iTunes. You're on uh, Google Podcasts, several different platforms here. David, you talked a lot about setting goals and you would say that you'd set these like really high, like outrageous kind of goals. Can you talk about how you think about the way you set your goals and then also your your path towards or your, how you're motivated really to achieve those goals yeah so boy, man at one point i was setting goals that were way too big and it actually got myself in trouble because i bought a deal that i didn't have any business buying because it was so big but i was like oh i told myself i was gonna buy this many doors but i am a firm believer for sure in setting very large very aggressive goals for yourself and then yeah i mean it's the old mentality like if i tell myself i'm gonna run 10 miles and I fall out at seven, well, it's still better than telling myself I was going to run one mile. Like I still made it a lot further. Right. Mm -hmm. And so plus, like if you focus on buying a hundred doors or buying, you know, whatever that is, and it's this like super daunting goal that feels unreachable, then like your, what would have been your goal now feels like it's simple comparatively. Right. Like if you focus on, I don't know, bench pressing 300 pounds and your actual goal is like 225, but you're like, oh my gosh, I think I can get 300. Like, well, 225 doesn't sound so bad now. And so mm-hmm. it's just kind of the mentality of getting out, getting out of your comfort zone and focusing on big goals because we sell ourselves short, right? I think it's Tony Robbins who says people underestimate the amount of stuff they can get done in a year and they overestimate the amount or overestimate the amount of stuff they can get done in a year, but they underestimate the amount of stuff they can get done in five years. So it's just taking those small steps and 
So like a prime example, a, I mean, we'll just use, I guess, uh, I set a goal after I had knee surgery to run a half Ironman, right? That's most people would say that's somewhat nuts, but I yeah. like triathlon, so whatever. And it was like, okay, cool. So then I just paid for a coaching program where it was like, now I have like a set, you know, step every, every day, every step of the way, whatever. And now I'm working towards a full iron, but you know, who knows? Every, the whole world's trying to derail me on that right now, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> but like, similarly, what I do is I'll set a goal as far as whether it's a cash flow goal. Like my current goals are, and I'm drawn, I've been traveling for like two weeks, so I've not been doing the journal. <laughs> But $10,000 a month in passive income, finish the Ironman and five deals a month through our off-market deal company, right? And so the Ironman is easy. You get a coaching program, you stick to it. The five deals a month is much more like, okay, what's the next thing we need to do? Like we just hired a cold caller. So now how do I manage the cold caller and, and whatever? But the passive income is like, okay. And so you just, what you're doing is every, every you know, you set the goal for a year out or whatever. And then you're saying, okay, well, if I want to hit... 10,000 a month by the end of the year, then I need to have a thousand a month by the end of month two and, and whatever. And you just kind of break it down to where every week you get up and you write down like, this is my goal. And here's what I'm going to do this week to try to achieve it. And maybe that's learning about a new form of crypto that pays you 4% return for putting your money there or, or whatever, whatever that is. Right. And so I think the, the secret to achieving those goals is just every week, you write down like your weekly plan and every day you write down like your daily, daily, your most next, next, most important next step for achieving that goal. And if you just focus on that goal and surround yourself with people who are trying to achieve the same things, and then every day you achieve like just one step towards that goal, it, it adds up real quick. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you also mentioned in another talk about building, you mentioned also building up your network. And so going along with your goals, networking with people who also have these big audacious kind of goals here that's really important here so that's awesome yeah yeah that's something i found you know very difficult here in japan like i i work at a university and you know it's it's kind of funny but as, as you can imagine people working at a university tend to not be very interested in capitalistic pursuits <laughs> so yeah. i've i've always had an issue with finding like-minded people and i know that's not always the case john has a little group at his university that love to talk about this stuff one of the things i hear quite often from the people that i talk to is that when i was first getting started i would tell them you know i wasn't making very much money and i was saying i was doing this they were like you're gonna lose all your money i can't wait till you lose all your money and then once i started making money and i told them about it they they were just like well you just got lucky you know or, or something like that. There was always an excuse. I have kids. You don't have kids. That's why, you know, it was so, there was something that was coming up. And one of the things we've heard you say is your income isn't your problem. And I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit and some of these sort of excuses that we hear. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the best way to explain that is you know, everyone thinks that they just made more money, right? But if you make, let's say you own a building that has $600 a month in expenses and brings in a thousand dollars a month. Well, that's awesome. You're making four, 400 bucks a month off it. But if you want to get it to $500 a month, most people in their brain think, well, that's easy. We'll just raise rent to 1100. Well, that's great. Except actually after taxes, you really only brought in an extra like $70, right? Maybe after some other fees or property management, maybe you're only really bringing in $60. You, you might've raised rent a hundred dollars, but you're not keeping all of that hundred. Same with income, same with any kind of income stream, right? 
taxes, whatever. But if you cut the expenses, if you were able to cut the expenses from $600 to $500, that's a pure $100 extra in your account that Mm -hmm. you didn't have to do any extra work. And you can still increase the rent, right? You can still do that. But people don't think about the expense side. It's like expenses and like safety, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody likes the safety guy on a job site until it's too late. And you need the safety guy, but it's not sexy. Nobody likes that job. Nobody wants to be that guy. Expenses are the same way. Nobody, it's not sexy to walk around and say, I saved a hundred dollars this month. But the reality is if you, if you get that thousand dollar pay raise and you aren't watching your expenses, they're going to creep up and you're going to be in the same spot you were before. But if you can get the expenses under control, a, you can probably find cash right now where you are as is, where is that you can invest. And B, when you increase those, that, that income through investments or whatever, and your expenses stay the same, like now you're making even more money to reinvest. And so it's, it's just a mentality thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome advice. Yeah, I, I always find that to be the truth. You know, it's like if you're going to, you know, as you said with Robert Kiyosaki, like you don't ask, what, what was it again? Don't ask. Say, uh, I can't afford this. You want to say, how can I afford this? How can I afford this? Yeah, or same thing with your goals. Like if you have a strong enough why to, to why you want to accomplish it, you can figure out a way to do it. So that's just a really great point. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so as we kind of get ready to wrap this up here, I just wanted to make sure that we tell everybody who's listening to this that you can find David Bray. He's got his own book available on Amazon. It's called The No BS Guide to Military Life. Yep. You can also find him his podcast. And before I try and introduce this, David, can you tell us precisely where we can, where our listeners can find you? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way at this point is to just Google Military Mon, the Facebook group is the Military Millionaire Facebook group. We're on Instagram, TikTok, everything else, and across all platforms as either Military Millionaire or From Military to Millionaire, depending on which which phrase was taken when I tried to <laughs> tried to barge my way in there. So, <laughs> uh, but we're we're at a point now where we're 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 Googleable. So that's awesome. Great. Well, yeah, thank so. you so much for joining us, even though you're feeling a little under the weather today, and we're just really happy to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm uh, glad this was still able to work out. Yeah, I woke up this morning. I was like, man, I don't feel very good. My kids have been kind of sick and I, I grabbed the temperature, like the thermometer and I, I did the, the forehead and it said 102. And I was like, nah, I'm not that sick. And then I did the like <laughs> under the tongue and it said 100.5. And I did it like three more times. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I can buy that. And I basically just curled <laughs> up in bed for uh, five hours today. So hey, I feel good now. So yeah, I was going to say, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this, especially if, if you're You've got a temperature like that too. So yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Great. Cool. cool. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and end this stream. And so for everyone listening on the expat fire club, we we're glad to have you on and we look forward to seeing you all in the next one. Thank you so much, everyone. Yep. See you later.